The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Please remain standing as I read our scripture for our meditation today and then lead us in prayer. From Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 10, Philippians 4 verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, We would ask you to teach us this secret, this rare jewel of Christian contentment that the Apostle speaks of here. Continue to teach that to us as we fix our hearts and our minds on the one who strengthens us, on your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great and chief treasure. So now use these moments as we meditate on your word to deepen our appreciation, and our delight in him. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, throughout this semester, the Apostle Paul has been teaching us and the Philippians uh, what it means to live the confession that he stated in the first chapter, to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he's been teaching us by showing us how it's done by opening up his heart and showing us how he processes his sufferings and his joys. So we've seen Paul suffer and we saw Jesus serve and his service as you'll recall in the second chapter involved obedience even to the depth of death on the cross. And we watched Timothy worry and we saw Epaphroditus risk his life for the cause of the gospel and we saw Paul rest in the righteousness that is God's gift in Christ. And we saw Paul run because all that Paul had tasted so far of the grace of God whet his appetite for even more. Paul wanted to seize all that it meant to know Christ because Christ had seized him already. But there's one theme we haven't touched on directly yet and that's a theme that runs like an undercurrent through the whole letter and that's the theme of joy. 
uh, a theme that you can't miss as you read this little letter. Uh, And Paul's been touching on it all the way through in every topic. Uh, He says in the first chapter that he rejoices when Christ has preached, even if other preachers are reaping a bigger harvest than he is. He expects that he'll rejoice when Caesar hands down the verdict on Paul's appeal, whatever the outcome is, as long as Christ is glorified in Paul's body, whether by life or by death. And in the second chapter, he says to the Philippians, he wants them to share in his joy whatever the outcome, whatever the verdict turns out to be. The unity of his friends in Philippi will fill up his joy, chapter 2, verse 2. In fact, they are his joy. Chapter 4, verse 1, and he urges them repeatedly to rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 4. And now finally Paul says he rejoices greatly, and the occasion of his rejoicing is the money. It's the gift that has arrived from them, their donation. And so one purpose for which Paul is writing this letter is to say thank you for that contribution. As you know, when Paul could, he would support his own team by tent making, the the original, literal tent maker. Uh, But it's a little awkward now, with his ankle chained to a Roman guard 24-7, to be doing much tent making work. He can receive some visitors, but uh, he has expenses. Actually, he has the rent on the apartment where uh, the Roman authorities are keeping him, as well as food and other things. So... This gift that has arrived, brought by Epaphroditus, is really a boost to Paul's budget. Uh, And so Paul wants to thank them, but he has to word it so, so delicately. He really has had trouble. He mentions that in verse 14. It's been tight. He's been hungry sometimes. And yet, he wants to add two footnotes so they don't get the wrong impression. First of all, he says, I'm glad you revived your thinking, your concern for me. But then he says immediately, but I know you have been concerned. I'm not sitting here moping, thinking that because I'm out of sight, I'm out of your minds. I know I've been in your hearts all along. You just haven't had opportunity to send the gift yet. But now you have, and Epaphroditus has brought it. So don't think I'm sort of resenting uh, your, your silence, not at all. And then he goes on to say, and I'm so glad about this gift, but I really didn't need it. I'm really not speaking as one who's in need, and that... A lot of commentators talk about this as a very unthankful way to say thanks. Uh, Pretty ungrateful. Thanks a lot, but, you know, I really could have done without it. Sort of like your Aunt Mildred when you searched for the perfect gift, uh, but maybe she grew up in the Depression and she feels guilty about getting anything valuable. Oh, you shouldn't have. You shouldn't have spent so much money. It's the wrong color and it doesn't my size and I wouldn't use it anyway. And you think, well, thanks a lot, you know. A little appreciation. But that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not saying thank you, but no thanks. He's saying thank you for the gift, but what I really am after is not the gift, but it's your hearts reflected in the gift. And in fact, it's the fruit of Christ's grace in your hearts, that fruit that you benefit from because it shows that Jesus is at work in your heart. That's what he's concerned about. But in the process of saying thanks, he also, as a loving Father, pastor says, and by the way, I want to teach you about contentment here. I want to open up my heart to you once more and show you that you really can keep an equilibrium emotionally in the highs and lows of your circumstances when you see the secret that I've seen and that I'm practicing 
in responding, and that is, I can handle every situation through Christ who gives me strength. And we know the Philippians needed this because he's warned them earlier about grumbling and questioning, and even in the verses just before this, he's given them an antidote to their anxiety by saying, don't worry, but instead, bring your requests and your needs to God with thanksgiving. So they had needs and we have needs. We're tempted to discontent. We're tempted to worry. We're tempted to go up and down. I'm not sure what it is for you right now. Maybe it's too much month at the end of the paycheck, if there is a paycheck. Maybe it's too few hours between now and 10 a.m. on Friday morning. Not that you're thinking about that at a time like this, but you never can tell. Maybe it's not knowing what comes next after graduation. How can we be content in any and every circumstance. What does Paul mean by contentment and then how do we get it? Well Paul means by contentment as we see here that he's content with where he is and what he has but as we remember from chapter 3 he's not completely content with who he is yet. He's content with where he is. He says I have uh, learned I am content. I've learned to be brought low and to abound and those Those opposites, that first pair of opposites in verse 12, focus on more than just finances. This word brought low is the word that Paul used back in the second chapter to describe Jesus who is in very nature God making himself low, humbling himself. It's not just about dollars, it's not just about the poverty line, it's about status, it's about standing. Paul was content not only to go without funds, but to go without honor as well. Sometimes being content in a place where nobody appreciates you is as hard as being content in a place where you don't have enough resources to go around. And that's why I love the hymn that we started with, where we pray, I would not have the restless will that hurries to and fro, seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. And then those last couple lines in the third verse, content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. That's sometimes a hard struggle for us, to be content with a little space as long as God, as long as Christ is glorified. But Paul says, I'm content with that. High or low, doesn't matter to me. And then he talks more overtly, directly about the financial situation uh, in, uh, toward the end of verse 12, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I've been <coughs> on top of the world in terms of resources, and I've been, frankly, hungry. And when I hear Paul saying he can be content when he's hungry, I think, have I ever really been hungry? I'm embarrassed with how little it takes to make me discontent. A car that needs repairs computer that's slow and booting up, a steak that doesn't quite have the flavor I was looking for, is a little tough to chew, and I'm discontent. Shame on me. Paul says, I could be hungry and I'm still content. But in fact, he says, I can also be really full, satiated, and I can be content. Sometimes that's hard too. You know how money works. The more you get, the more you think you need. It's like an addictive drug. You need another boost. And you know that many, many people have more than they need. We all have more than we need, but the people above us always have much, much more than they need. We just have barely more than we need. 
And still they want more. Calvin has this wonderful, wise comment on this text. He says, he who knows how to use abundance soberly and temperately with thanksgiving, prepared to part with everything whenever it may please the Lord, giving also a share to his brother according to his ability, and also not puffed up, that man has learned to excel and to abound. This is an excellent and rare virtue and much greater than the endurance of poverty. Ponder that one. So Paul is content with where he is, whether low or high, with what he has, whether much or little. But he's not content with who he is. We remember last time that he says, there's more that Christ has in store for me. I want to know him, to gain him, to be found in him in all of his fullness. And the finish line is when I see him face to face. Or as he says in the text, between that text and ours, that day when our Savior, the Lord Jesus, appears from heaven and makes the body of our lowliness like his glorious body to reflect him. Paul says, that's what I want. So he's, it's, his contentment is not a sort of a mellow, laid-back, whatever. No, he's eager, but he's pursuing the things that count forever. He is con- discontent with what he is so far. And he calls us, if we're growing in maturity, to do the same. But how do we get this contentment? How do we get this contentment with where we are and what we have that leaves us free to pursue all that Christ has for us. Well, Paul says here really that this contentment is a learned skill and a shared secret. In verses 11 and 12, um, he, he uses four verbs to talk about how he's come to this understanding. Uh, the middle verbs are simply the verb I know, oida, but the first verb is I had learned from Monthano, Emathon. And then the fourth verb is one that he never uses anywhere else. It's a perfect form of mueomai, the, the verb that is related to the induction into the mystery religions. He says, I've learned this first. It's a, at an acquired taste. It takes practice. And very often in the New Testament, when we talk about learning something, it's something that you learn through repeated practice and so Paul says this didn't come naturally to me but I've learned it by applying to my heart and my life and my circumstances the reality that I have a treasure far greater than any of the treasures that come and go in the vicissitudes of life I've learned a secret that's that fourth term that he has here I've learned the secret I think that's close Uh, the perfect form He never uses it elsewhere, only here. And as I said, it comes from the mystery religions, those religions that would hide their really cool secrets from outsiders. Uh, Only the initiates would get to know the inside scoop. And of course, we know elsewhere that Paul in particular, but the apostles in general, emphasized the musterion, the mystery of the gospel, is not something that we're keeping to ourselves. We're heralding it to the world. It's that public message of Jesus, the Son of God, who became man and who lived the perfectly righteous life inside and out, thought, word, and deed, and then went to the cross to endure the wrath of God against sin. Not his sin, your sin. And was raised from the dead 
and exalted to the right hand of the Father and has poured out the Spirit and is returning at the end of history. This public declaration of mystery, so very different from the mystery religions. There it is, out on the open market. No passwords, no secret handshakes, no going down into a pit and having warm bull's blood poured over you, as in some of the mystery religions. It's just there. Now, it is for insiders, but the way you come in is believing, trusting in the Savior who's been heralded, trusting in him. And Paul cleans up this term from its unsavory associations to say, this is the secret of being content. It's the secret of knowing that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ himself is the secret of contentment. Christ himself is the treasure, the one who strengthens me. It takes strength to exercise this kind of contentment. It's not sort of a mellow, sedative, a narcotic. I've had a few medical procedures where they, they give you one of those you know, medications, the anesthetic that puts you under, and they say, now count backwards from 10. And you start 10 and 9 and you feel really good and you don't get to 8. I love those. I love them. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He says, I can do. I am strong enough to face all things. And the all things here is not leaping over buildings with a single bound. It's enduring all of these things. I I used to have a plaque that I bought at some summer camp when I was a kid. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. And I had all kinds of visions of what that meant I could do. But when I look at it in context, Paul says, I can face any and every circumstances with a joy, with a peace. It may be a joy shot through with sorrow if I'm concerned for the believers that are at risk. But still there's a joy in Christ. I can face it all. It takes strength, but he provides the strength. It's him who strengthens me. There's another interesting word that Paul uses here. The word that's translated contentment here, uh, uh, I can be content, is autarkes, uh, which is a word that a couple of its related words appear over in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the only other time that Paul uses them. But it's a word that was a favorite of the Stoic philosophers uh, because they thought of it really in terms of its etymology, autarkes, sufficient for oneself, Uh, sort of an aloof uh, intellectual superiority that could see that because everything in the universe is part of some matrix that is permeated by logos, by reason, there's really no point in getting upset about anything. You just sort of stand away from it and stand aloof from it. Well, Paul is far from standing aloof. And Paul is far from saying, I am self sufficient. Paul says, I can endure all these circumstances because I'm looking to another, to Christ, who gives me strength. It's like the picture in that wonderful image in the prophecy of Jeremiah that sort of echoes Psalm 1, that the one who fears the Lord and trusts the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of water. The tree bears fruit in all kinds of seasons, not because it has the source of life in itself, but because the water from the river is supplying it. And that, Paul says, that's what's going on for me. I'm resting and trusting in Christ, the source of my force 
to push back against discontent, to push back against worry, to push back in a joy that can resist the sorrows and the threats of life. The source of that force is Christ, the one who strengthens me. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, I thank God who has given me strength. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. The more we pay attention to the truth that if we're trusting in Jesus, the living God is dwelling in us by the spirit of Jesus Christ, as Paul said in Philippians 1.19. The less we're going to waste our mental and emotional energy on the stuff that doesn't last, either the stuff that we have and are afraid of losing or the stuff that we don't have and resent that we don't, the more we're going to focus on what God is giving us in Christ, already the first fruits of the Spirit, the earnest, the pledge, the down payment of our full inheritance, the more we'll be able to claim the promise that Paul has issued to these believers just a few verses before our text when he urges them to cast their anxiety on the Lord in prayer with thanks, he says, the God of peace will be with you and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a week we need that kind of joy and contentment. And next week will be, and the week after that will be as well, and the week after that. We need it all the time. And so we're, we, we can be thankful that Paul <laughs> has shown us what it's like in his own experience as he's pointed through his experience away from himself to Christ, in whom he can bear all sorts of things because Christ has given him strength. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will teach us this secret more and more that we might take to heart the reality that Christ is the one who strengthens us for plenty or want, for high places or low. Teach us to treasure him. Give us this rare jewel of Christian contentment. As your servant from several centuries ago, Jeremiah Burroughs, spoke of it. Father, teach us that. Uh, But teach us it through especially your word as you've opened it to us in this wonderful letter of your Apostle Paul to the Philippians and to your church of all the ages. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.